Hello, hello. Happy 2023, everyone. I am so excited to come back online and start this new season. It's been a couple of years. So much has changed and transformed over these last couple of years. And hopefully we're just a little bit wiser, moving more towards more compassion and understanding for each other. Reintroducing myself, my name is Evelisa, and welcome to Stories of Life and Love. This is a podcast where we get to talk to people from many different walks of life, professionally or in their own personal journeys, to share some insights and wisdom with all of us about what they've learned and how the arts have also helped them through their journeys. For this season, I'm really excited to speak with different leaders and professionals from many different walks of life who will speak about more specifically the goals of diversity, equity, and inclusion across different professional contexts, across sectors, and how the arts, you know, one of the oldest storytelling mediums for humanity, have actually been a really helpful tool or they see it as a helpful tool in helping to build a more authentically inclusive culture or a sense of belonging for people so we can feel a little more free to reach our full potential. So a couple of exciting updates to start the new year you know, hashtag new year, new me, new you, (laughs) is this month, January. I am pushing myself out of my comfort zone and doing my very first TED Talk, which is really exciting. I've had the opportunity to speak in front of audiences, groups of, you know, hundreds of people and leaders, but now to do an actual TED Talk, it's it's quite thrilling. I'm I'm both nervous and excited. So you can join me on my journey. I'm sharing a little bit of it on TikTok. It's at evelisa.art. So please join me there. And also I have a new website for that, which I will be sharing with you. So stay tuned for that. Just so you know, this first TED Talk is going to be about how we can use the arts to help drive culture change and bring about authentic belonging in company cultures, working with people across different levels of organizations, whether it's leaders or employees or everything in between. So I'm really excited for that. I really want to show some practical ways in which the arts can teach us or be a tool to understand each other better. So I share a bit of that in the TikTok. I don't know what you did for New Year's, but one of the things I did New Year's Eve during the day with my fiance is we watched RRR. And actually... (laughs) on this topic of the arts and equity and inclusion 
It is a powerful, amazing piece of art, piece of filmmaking and storytelling. And there's so many entry points. I mean, you can love it for the very cool action scenes and all that, but it's there's so many levels to it. And I won't get into so much of the spiritual ways to read into the movie or, um, you know, there's a lot of different ways to look at it, but just from a very simple, like, who is telling the story, who is driving the story perspective, uh, it's it's really amazing. I mean, the way it portrays this sense of pride and self-love uh, from an Indian perspective, especially during British rule, it's really, really amazing. So um, it really gives a vision of what it's what it could be, what it is like to tell your own powerful story, especially during a time of oppression, colonialism, and imperialism. So it's amazing. Strongly recommend. So with that, my first guest to kick off this season is none other than my professional mentor and incredible spiritual teacher, author, and long-standing leader in the equity and inclusion space, Mr. Howard Ross. Howard is a lifelong social justice advocate and is considered one of the world's seminal thought leaders on identifying and addressing unconscious bias, which is quite challenging work. You know, he's the author of books like Everyday Bias or Reinventing Diversity, which is all about transforming organizational culture. Another book in 2018 was Our Search for Belonging. They're incredible, incredible reads. It's such an honor to have him as a mentor and sounding board in my own equity and inclusion journey. You know, when you see some of the work that he's done, such as our search for belonging, how our need to connect is tearing us apart. He is able to handle the complexity of some of the deepest rooted contradictions within our own human experience. In that work, he talks about how our need to belong, that human drive to belong, is actually why our world is so divided. There's such a paradox within ourselves. And uh, one of the things that we get to talk about a lot is with all the complexity and challenge in equity and inclusion work and wanting to make it authentic and sustainable in different cultures and companies, there is a joy in the work, in its purpose, to support people to be the best expression of who they are. So that's the nature of our discussions. How we get there is, you know, it's a lifelong trial and error, doing our best, but I hope you enjoy our discussion. And with that, here is my conversation with Howard Ross. Excellent. Good. It works. Who's in the picture in your in your icon picture? You're with someone in that photo. Oh, Dr. Maya Angelou. That's why I was having dinner with Dr. Maya Angelou that That's, night. 
That's amazing. There you go. Yeah. That's beautiful. Such a beautiful, beautiful person. Amazing. Amazing. It's like being with a queen. <laughs> exactly. I love that. All right. So I'm so happy to have you in this conversation. As I had uh, mentioned just very briefly, it's really about um, having these conversations about people's personal life journey, their own leadership experiences, and also the role of the arts that they've seen in their, you know, through their journey. So let's get started. There's about sure. five questions. Um, yeah, and then usually I just edit this stuff out. Edit sure. it a little bit. Okay. So um, I'm so happy to have you here, Howard, my wonderful mentor and inspiration for so many people. So I'd love to know, how would you like to introduce yourself to the audience? And that can include your background, family upbringing, spirituality, work. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Wow. Um, uh, well, I, I guess uh, if, you, if you ask me to introduce based on importance, I would say I'm a husband and a father and a grandfather. Um, my family is is always ground zero for me. And um, um, But I've had an opportunity to spend more than 40 years now doing work with people in organizations all over the world. It's been really just an incredible blessing to be with people in, I think, 47 of the 50 states and something like 50 other countries. Um, started my started my uh, journey when I was a teenager, really, uh, doing social justice work. I got involved in civil rights work when I was very young, 15 or 16, mostly because I come from a family uh, with, a, with a pretty horrific Holocaust history. And so I grew up in the shadow of that, being born in January 1951. And, um, and just uh, it sort of became our family business. We got two messages growing up. One, bad things can happen. And the second was you're supposed to do something about it. So... Um, both of my sisters and I got involved very young in social justice. My older sister became one of our nation's leading immigration lawyers for many years until she just retired fairly recently. My younger sister was Mary Wright Edelman's fundraiser to Children's Defense Fund for many years before doing similar work with social justice organizations all over the world. And I started my career as a teacher and a school administrator in, with very low income, mostly African-American community, and then eventually um, went into consulting and have been doing now for the last I guess, oh, 38 years um, have been doing consulting with people all over the world on issues of creating organizational community, really. And that involves diversity inclusion work, also team development and leadership development. So I feel very, very fortunate to have had the opportunity to not have to work for a living, to do what I'm passionate about and make a living at it. So. Wow, I love that. First of all, I actually didn't even know that you had a bit of that uh, background in the education sector. And it sounds like you come from a very high impact family, like just given what your your siblings are are up to and how they've worked through their own lives and their own journey. Yeah. Um, no, that's amazing. And I'm I'm curious to know, just to get to the heart of it, like, do you see compassion mattering to you in the work that you do across, you know, the different audiences you might affect? And um yeah, just where, where compassion lies for you, how much that's a driver, and maybe what you've been focusing on. It's a big question and an important one. Yeah, I mean, the, the answer is absolutely, first of all. I mean, I think some of it has to do with my fundamental belief that um, you can never take people any farther than you go on yourself. And, um, you know, the, in the old days of the band, the bomb movement, back in the 50s and the 60s, there was used to be this saying, I think it came from a 
a minister named A.J. Musty, who was one of the sort of, you know, ban the bomb kind of protesters. And he said, um, there is no way to peace, peace is the way. And I think that, um, you know, that that resonates deeply with me about when we're talking about inclusion. You know, I think that there is no way to inclusion. They're, the only way to get there is by being inclusive. And I think all too often, uh, particularly now, one of the challenges we find because of people, people are in pain and um, they're frustrated and, and wow. understandably. But as a result of that, sometimes the strategies that we employ, rather than demonstrate inclusion, come at people like attacking people for being who they are for, or trying to fix people and these kinds of strategies, which, you know, completely understand the emotional underpinning of why somebody would go there. The problem is it doesn't facilitate change. Most people confronted with that will not change. It'll dig in more deeply or they'll just go into hiding. For myself, a lot of it was given by, um, by my, my own spiritual work over the last uh, 25 years. Um, I've been in a very, uh, um, just a very dedicated uh, spiritual path in terms of um, um, studying various different religions around the world without any particular, very, very universal in terms of the way I approach it. And um, and just recognizing that um, that so much of what I see in other people is a reflection of things that are disowned in myself. Um, you know, my own my own challenges end up showing up in the way I react to other people. And, and that's been enormously helpful for me to remember in that when something's showing up, whether it's in my relationship or with a client, um, that um, you know, if something over there is triggering me, that it's likely that there's something going on over here. I like to say it, the way I like to say it, Ed, is that um, if 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 I'm hysterical, it's likely historical. Um, you know, there's like something that's yeah. getting triggered, you know, and and so when I'm so because the danger is that when we're working with people, if we're not conscious about ourselves, uh, then our own wounding gets brought into the relationship with the people we're working with. And if you're in a classroom and you you certainly facilitate plenty of sessions yourself and you know that person who hooks you, the person whose basic attitude is like this, you know, and you get kind of hooked just like, like a fish, you know, and, and, and you find yourself leading the whole session to that person or, or reacting exclusively to that person or making assessments about where that person's coming from, like they must be resistant or they must be racist or, they, or whatever it is, when in fact, we never know what's going on with that person. And, um, and bringing compassion to that person and trying to understand them is, is the key that so unlocks it all. I remember I could share an example with you. Um, I was working with an organization many years ago and um, one of the people, and I was trying to get the leadership team of this organization to align with what we were doing. And, uh, and kind of the hardest nut to crack was the chief financial officer who, who was in a big position in the organization. It was a healthcare organization. He had several hundred people in his, in his area because he not only had finance, but he had a couple other areas. And so I went out to lunch with him one day and, um, and, you know, I was kind of telling him what we were doing. And he said, ah, nobody cares what I think anyway, you know. And I, because I was telling oh, him, it's wow. really important. Nobody cares what I think anyway. Yeah. And I said, and I just stopped for a second. And my normal thing would have been to say to him, um, he was to try to talk him into it. But instead, I just stopped. And his name was Dan. And I said, I said, Dan, I said, um, how does that feel? And how does it feel to be a leader of hundreds wow. of people and, and to not have anybody care what you think? And and he just that's like instantly up. validating, by the way. Instantly well, it's, just really curious. Validated his of, reality, which he probably yeah. has been feeling total pushback against. Well, yeah, actually, he feels like here's this guy seemingly with all this power. It, it, are you really experiencing that nobody cares what I think? And then and then and his response was, um, "Well, do you think they do?" 
you know, and all of a sudden we're in a conversation and he actually became a champion of the project, you know, curiosity. But, but, you know, as, as like the Buddha said, you know, what we resist persists. And so when we take on somebody as our opponent, rather than as somebody we need to understand, yeah. um, we invariably get opponent behavior from them. When we take Absolutely. them on, like with curiosity and compassion, like what's going on in your world that has you feel this way? And I think a lot of it is because I basically don't feel that human beings, individual human beings are either inherently good or inherently bad. I've seen too much especially when I was teaching work with young children, I've seen too much about how life gets formed and know that, you know, I happen to be blessed to grow up in you know, a pretty healthy home with parents who clearly love me every day. So I have a pretty strong sense of self, but I've seen so many people who, who've had to really fight to survive in life. And, and so I think compassion is at the heart of everything we need to do. I think we're teaching people to be compassionate about people's differences, to understand how my life might be different from somebody who's a woman or a person of color or somebody who's trans or LGBTQ or, or any of these things, um, you know, I have to, not I have to, but I find that, that I'm curious, I'm interested to put myself into their life and see what that was like for them and how it shaped them and how it's impacting them today. And, and from that point, we're in a conversation of mutual support and understanding, and that's a much better place to do the work from. I, I absolutely love that. And I, I think, you know, I personally, I relate to this so much. This is why I love talking with you because at the end of the day, I care about the results. I care about advancing our actual experience of equity. And therefore it means we have to invite people into this process. It's not a zero sum game. It's not more inclusion means less of you. You know, I think it's, it's more so let's, let's expand our, not to get too woo woo, but Let's expand our consciousness. Let's expand our understanding of what it means to be human. It's gonna, it might be different from your lived experience and that's okay. And let's just keep ourselves open to that reality. And it may surprise us. It may make us upset and, you know, oh my gosh, how could this happen? But that that's the reality. We have to embrace it, you know, and, and respect those differences, you know, being, being a certain way in America has not always been the safest place for some people compared to others. That's okay. It doesn't invalidate who you are, but it, it means you have to consider that there are other things at play for some people. And let, let's just, yeah, let's just build a more equitable and future so we can be our full selves. And that's why I, I love this. I love your, your point about that and compassion is. Yeah. Can I, can I, can I share a little story with you? I would love really to. Yeah, in fact, yes. it's in one of my books. I forget which book I wrote it in, but many, many years ago now, it's got to be, oh, God, probably the mid-90s, I was, I was asked to come down to, um, to uh, the South, to, um, to Monroe, Louisiana, which is on the wow. next to the Mississippi Delta, um, and uh, to lead a workshop for a Gannett newspaper down there. It was a two-day workshop. And, uh, and, you know, just to give you a framing reference, um, Monroe is where David Duke had his headquarters when he ran for governor of Louisiana. Wow. So this is Old South. And in those days, a lot of history of Klan activity and all this kind of stuff that went around the area, you know. And so the first day of the workshop, we, you know, we were talking about a lot of that, the background of what was there and people's experiences. And um, then mostly, mostly the group was black and white, this particular group. And, um, and there was a young man in the group who didn't say much the first day. He was a, he was a pressman for the newspapers. He, you know, one of these guys that just produces papers, um, you know, so blue collar guy, flannel shirt, blue jeans, kind of a guy. 
Um, and uh, on white guy, about 30 years old, I would guess. And, and on the second morning, about an hour before lunch, he's, he raises his hand. And you know, being a facilitator, you always like to see that new hand go up. And you know, he wasn't hostile the first day. He just didn't say much. And, and he says, you know, um, he says, I feel conflicted. And I, see, and I said, what do you feel conflicted about? And, um, and he starts looking down, you know, and he says, uh, basically his conflict was, you know, he, he, he says, I grew up in such and such an area. I wasn't familiar, but it turns out it was a rural area outside of the town. He says, my daddy and my grand, the whole time I'm looking down, I'm not going to do that with you, but he's looking at his lap. And, and my daddy and my granddaddy were my heroes growing up. They were, the, you know, taught me to fish, taught me to hunt. Granddaddy was the pastor of our church. They were the best, best men I ever knew. And, uh, and then he pauses and I'm sitting there waiting. Okay, what's the point when he looks up with tears in his eyes and says they were in the Klan, being the Ku Klux Klan, of course, wow, and yeah. the whole room inhales, you know? And then I'll never forget this line. He said, it was never much talked about, was never much hidden either. And he talked about how, um, you know, when he listens to his colleagues talk about their experience, he, he likes them and he trusts them and he believes them. But at the same time, if he buys into it, that means his father and his grandfather were terrible people. And he knows they were the best men he ever knew. Wow. And he just didn't know how to say this. This was a good and decent man, clearly making himself vulnerable in this way to having the courage to do that. And in those days, um, we were trained to sort of beat it out of people. You know, it's like, well, let me tell you why they really weren't good people was sort of the strategy that was there. We were trained to do that. But there was something that really touched me about this guy just his courage, if nothing else. And so instead I said, can we talk about this? He said, sure. And I pull up a chair and he pulls up a chair in front of this half circle of about 30 people or whatever it was. And for the next hour, I just asked him questions. You know, I just said, what was that yeah. like? And yeah. Where has it show up as conflict in your life? And where do you find yourself challenged by some of the beliefs people are saying? And, you know, what was it like to grow up and to know this was going on? And, you know, just to try to understand. And, and you could see the whole room just I got it because I had a corner of my arm watching the room and the whole room kind of starts like this with him. And then as, as he's talking, everybody's just like this because what I was doing was asking about his humanity. And at the end of the session, we stopped and we went to lunch. People applauded him. And then I'd look and there, we are, there they are at lunch. There's a box, box lunches in the room. And he's sitting not 18 inches from the strongest black male voice in the room. And the two of them are just like deeply in communication and conversation with each other. And so on the plane on the way home, I had several thoughts. One was, how can I make that happen again? You know, that kind of communication that they were in. But then I really stopped. And, and mostly what hit me really deeply in my gut was, first of all, this was a good guy, but he still had some beliefs that, that we needed to shift. If this isn't just about people being good people, what is it about? There's gotta be something deeper than that. And then secondly, and this was the one that was a real gut punch for me, was asking myself the question, if I was had grown up in the same environment he had grown up in, could I really say with any assurity that I would see the world any differently than he did? And that was like, that was like a lightning bolt because it's like, wow, well, if, if this isn't about people being inherently good or inherently bad, if it's all about learned behavior, then we can learn other behavior. And that was one of the huge breakthroughs for me in really exploring the unconscious bias work, especially and understanding how much of this is unconsciously yes. coded in and that the ticket out is consciousness. Especially if the culture in, you know, the DEI culture, I guess, was like you said, the very overt, this is why this is wrong. That's right. Wrong, like all of that, when you have this moment of seeing how deeply, you know, conditioned, I guess we are in these subconscious ways, that's very profound. It changes the game. It changes the game so much. And, um, 
it gives more space for compassion and patience for people, hopefully. Yeah, absolutely. And as practitioners, we can get really stuck in our way of doing things. But this is the way exactly. we think. And, and if we're not careful, we can be more focused on being right than on being successful. So what does success sometimes look like? Is it those little moments of the person just saying, like, how do you even measure success in this this type of work? The compassion yeah, work? <laughs> yeah. Well, this it's a good question. I mean, there's there actually some really interesting work going on. A very, very dear friend, one of my dearest friends in the world is teaching courses on compassion at Stanford University right now. So there, mm-hmm. I mean, that's one of the things I think we have to get away from is thinking about some of these terms like consciousness and compassion as being this like woo-woo, touchy-feely stuff. Yes. But the truth is, there's an enormous amount of science behind it. You know, we know what the brain does when compassion gets produced. We know that we've got this capacity, these mirror neurons that we produce in the brain that give some of us um, a, a greater access to empathy than others. And we know ways that we can increase empathy. Um, you know, all of this stuff now is science. It's no longer just woo-woo stuff. And I, and I think that's one of the things that we, we need to do is to get out of our you know, our, our tendency to be mental all the time yeah, and really open our hearts to each other. And I think, you know, we see some people, Brene Brown is doing some brilliant work around this about vulnerability and compassion and the importance of it for just this one example. Yeah, just what, um, what role has art maybe played in your own life? And then maybe if you have some guesses or hypotheses on like how art matters in, in this whole conversation. Mm, yeah, for sure. Well, you know, I think that... Um, there's there's something about art um, that evokes a different part of us. I mean, Rumi, the great Persian poet, um, still the most popular poet in the world 800 years after his death, that's that's what I call staying power, right? Um, uh, said, uh, God lives in the silence and the song and the art. Um, that there's something about um, the emotional aspect of art that evokes something in us that doesn't come out of just intellect. Um, and I know for myself, uh, um, that's, that's existed in two different ways. One was I grew up in the 60s, you know, I was born in 1951, um, at a time when music was the source of what we were doing, you know, in the protest movements of the 60s, um, uh, whether it was in civil rights movement, the anti-war movement, I also worked with the farm workers union, you know, it was music that kept us going, you know, some of the songs that we all know, we shall overcome and things like that, of course, are known, but but singing together um, in the evenings, uh, it, was, it was a way to lift up. And I think a lot of that came out of the, a lot of the reason for that came out of the black church, that the, that the church was, you know, music in the church was so uplifting and, and gospel was, was so much a part of the civil rights movement. And I think that that infused the rest of the movement as well. So, so from that standpoint, um, music has always been something that can, can lift my spirits. Um, there are times when I'm feeling low, I'll put on something um, sad and I let myself feel my feelings so that they can move and I can move past them rather than, you know, locking me up. Um, and then the other part of it, uh, which is completely kind of coming out from a different side is that I'm a musician. As I think, you know, I sang lead in rock and roll bands for 25 years. I play guitar. And, um, and, uh, and so my own musical expression was one of the things that got me out of my shell and able to be with, be with people more because standing in front of you know, giving a speech in, in some ways is easier than singing in front of a thousand people at the White House, for example, you know, you know, or things like that. So um, so I think that, um, you know, in both ways, I think that that's the case. And and even as I'm working with people, like if I'm giving talks or something, I find that um, that media 
you know, the, the way you do slides, um, the way you can use music. I use music to, to, to change energy in the room um, when I'm doing extended programs. At breaks, I'll use music to, to change the energy. If, we, if we've been in something kind of um, really slow and tender, then at a break, I might put on a song that captures that, but then build it up a little bit so when we come back, we're ready to go into another energy and I can use the music to transition for that. So, so I think there are lots of different ways that it plays in. And, and um, when I look at um, some art, like your art, for example, which is so evocative and, and brings in so many, you know, aspects of culture and colors and people um, that, um, you know, all of that, I think, is a, is a real opportunity. And, and, you know, my goodness, you're in Italy, you know, the impact that art has on people and, and you know, how people can just sit in front of the David. You know, I was just there this summer, as you know, and, and just yes. to sit in front of the David and be moved almost to tears by a piece of stone. Yeah, and it's quite remarkable. Exactly. It's funny, you're talking about David and, you know, the the place where we're going to get married is that sculpture by Bernini. And part of the majesty of a sculpture is, okay, the subject matter is Jesus, but regardless of whether you, whatever you believe, yeah. you see the way, you know, art ends up being this like moment of, reflecting on the person's expression and you see a little bit of this like there's a sense of calm and strength and peace and serenity all conveyed within this human emotion like at least you're relating to that in this piece and so art becomes it's like it's a bit of a meditation it's a bit of reflecting what's in yourself and you know it's unspoken it's just it could be very powerful and cathartic you know yeah, like how you know, try to find me any way that you can describe a mother's love for her child that will be more effective than looking at the mother Mary in the Pietà. Oh my gosh, Pietà! You know, I mean, how can you how can you possibly describe a mother's love for their child better than that? It's just not possible in oh, my mind. True, it's so true. Yeah, and then you know, even just from a from how a lot of artists, modern contemporary artists, are actually interacting and have it playing with these more traditional artworks based on understanding their unique and diverse perspectives. Like there's this one artist called Yinka Shonabare. He is African-British and he- I have a book of his art that Dr. Cole oh, gave me. Yeah, yeah. Love, yeah, absolutely love his work. And he's playing yeah. with the Baroque and classical themes, Renaissance themes, but with the fabrics from different regions you know, across Africa that were, you know, affected by colonization or imperialism. And so this tension and dance between like these rich, luxurious places and figures and all that stuff, but like, what's the real source of that luxury? And, yes. um, you know, so I feel like that's a, such a beautiful example of these conversations, these equity inclusion and lived experience conversations that we're all having and how they play out in, in art and the experience of art. I don't know, I just feel like it's pretty powerful. Yeah, for sure, for what's sure. What's represented. And I think, it, I think it speaks to something larger too, which is that you know, I, I think we've suffered and, and are suffering in our culture from, um, from the artificial separation of different domains of our lives. Wow. You know, we, we have workplace environments in which yeah. you, you're expected to cut in, cutting yourself off, from the neck below and only, you know, only that only value the intellect as opposed to emotional connection. Um, 
uh, leaders who are so you know concerned about getting things right that they don't take the time to be in relationship with the people and and feel isolated and lonely themselves because of it not just that there are other people um, all of the times when we have worried only about people's performance without understanding what was going on behind their performance and and you know I know I've had employees over the years who who all of a sudden were, you know, something with their performance died off. And, and I remember one particular case where, where some of the leaders of the company wanted to fire somebody. And I said, this person is a good employee for, for oh. six or seven years. Let's find out what's going on. Turned out she was in an abusive relationship at home, which she didn't feel safe talking about. Oh, yeah. Finally got her to talk about it, got her help and got her out of that situation. So we just, we just never know. You know, there's a wonderful um, uh, little story in Stephen Covey's book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, which, yeah. you know, you, you're sure you're familiar with it and he talks about being on a train one night and in new york city i guess a subway train and the guy gets on with three kids and uh and the guy just sits down next to him kind of staring straight ahead the three kids are going crazy they're running all over the place yanking people's newspapers causing havoc and Covey's getting more and more irritated finally he turns to the guy and he says uh why don't you control your children you know and the guy says you know the guy looks at him and says you know we just left the hospital and their mother died and i just really don't know what to do and it's like all of a sudden he talks about how he turned from condemnation to compassion just in that moment. I mean, you never know what's going on with that person. Yeah. And people need love the most when they're the most unlovable. That's so true. Yeah. And that requires that choice, that choice for us to extend that bridge and seek understanding right. before being understood. That's um, right. So with a couple of minutes left, I just, first of all, I love talking to you, of course, uh, but I'd love to hear maybe, actually, I've never even asked this of you before, but what advice would you give to the version of you 10 years ago, knowing what you now? I know it's very general, but take that as you will. Like, how, what kind of advice would you give to yourself <laughs> 10 years um, ago at that stage in the game? Um, 10 years ago. Wow. I mean, if, I, I would go further back than that. I, I think the ultimate advice would be to be more myself. Mm. to not try so hard no to, way. Not to, try, to try to not try so hard to please people to not try so hard to impress people to not try so hard to oh. uh, to prove my worth um but to really i mean i think one of the things that's come out of my spiritual practice is just understanding that i have inherent worth i don't need to prove my worth in the oh world and so i don't need to i don't need to um i can be with people and not be at people you know not be performing wow. so much and I think that that's something that that comes, I think, as uh, for a lot of people, I think, when they get older, some people never get there. But I think but for people who do get there, a lot of times it's not until later in your life, because, you know, at that earlier stage of life, we are we do need to prove ourselves to some degree. You know, you and I were you just right. There's about, a rule. For that. How, do you not... next, how do you move up to that next level? Yeah. Well, you, by proving it, you were good at this level. So you got to prove yourself. And that means and that often shows up like, well, I better be who they think I should be instead of who I really am. And right. um you know, like, this I was is the evidence. This is the evidence that I am this idea of myself in a way like, like there right. may be a, some role for that, but at the end of the day, maybe it's not inherently it, the, our value doesn't come from that. Actually, at the end of the day, it's just inherent. That's what it seems like you're saying. Yeah, I mean, look, I think most people have inherent goodness in them. I'm not saying that we're all inherently good totally, but we have inherent goodness in us. I mean, I think there are very few people. There's some people clearly who are sociopathic and some people who are so stuck in malignant narcissism that they can't get out. But oh. And that's a shame because that's actually classified almost as a personality disorder when you get to that level. But we're really talking about a relatively small percentage of people. And, and I think that when we really... When we really um, stop and look, we can see 
that people are struggling. And usually the barrier to them really being open to connect is their fear. And so to the degree that we can try to uh, lessen that fear, to have them feel safe with us, mm. they'll actually be able to listen to the degree that they feel that we're trying to change them or fix them. Um, we know now scientifically that that triggers activity in the same regions of the brain associated with physical pain and the dorsal posterior insula of the brain. So, so we know when, look, in a relationship, in your relationship or my relationship or anybody's relationship, to, to try to fix your spouse and see how well that works. You know, yeah, it almost exactly. never works, right? Um, it, it, what works is acceptance and understanding and then trying to work together to find a way to coexist. And I think that um, we do have that opportunity even now uh, with a lot of people in our society. And I think one of the things we have to be careful about is not defining the other side, whether you're on the right defining the left or you're on the left defining the right as the worst of ourselves and to find those people who are still reachable on that other side. And, and even, if, even if it's a small percentage, sometimes it feels like, although I think it's truly is a larger percentage than we think, um, to, to reach out, you know? And, um, and that's what I've tried to do. I've tried to, to find um, people on the opposite end of the political spectrum or philosophical spectrum for me, who I've been able to build respectful relationships with, even though we disagree about things. We may yell at each other in the middle of an argument, but underneath it, we respect and trust each other and know that that you know we're willing to stick it out for the conversation. And those are among uh, the most valuable relationships in my life. Absolutely. Having this conversation. Absolutely.